Well, now it's on. <laughs> I could have sworn I, I clicked it when I came up. I must have clicked it twice and went back the other way. Now it's really loud. You guys could hear me before, right? All right. Uh, well, maybe you front guys could. Maybe everybody back there, we want to welcome those in the overflow. And, um, and so we're going to jump into this. But first, I want to make sure if you've got a sermon sheet or one of the fuel guide students or for the kids, you get the, the kids guides. There is a little thing in there that, um, that we're going to talk about for a second. A cultural complaint that I hear a lot is that um, things are changing with language right? And you, you hear it a lot, especially with cell phones and the idea that uh, with cell phones, you know, as we're typing messages in, we're trying to make them shorter and shorter, and so we're changing the language, right? And so um, there was a group of, um, of young adults that thought that it would be really neat to change a few words and phrases that were used a lot, and um, they, they turned them into initials. And so right there on your sermon sheets, you've actually got a few of these, and so I want to see if you can figure them out. So the first one that's on there is KC. And so I want you to try and figure out what KC is. Tell, tell your neighbor if, uh, if you have an idea of what you think it is, the person sitting next to you, and see if you can figure that out. And I'm going to tell you what it stands for. It stands for enough said. Right? Like enough said. But it's spelled K-N-U-F-F. C-E-D, enough said, right? So somebody's finishing their stop, somebody's finished their statement in KC, right? Um, uh, K-Y, right? See if you can figure that one out. Share with the person sitting next to you. K period, Y period. What do you think those two words stand for? My guess is you're going to be thinking here in a second exactly what this phrase means and that it's no use. But it's not spelled N-O-U-S-E. It's spelled K-N-O-W-Y-U-S-E. I know some of you are probably just sitting back there getting agitated at the language being destroyed before your eyes, before your ears. Uh, O-W. All right, give that one a try. If you've got an idea for O-W, uh, share that with the person sitting next to you. These young people, what are they doing to our language? All right, stands for all right in replace of all right, and it's O-L-L-W-R-I-G-H-T. Just butchered, isn't it? The last one, you guys would never use any of these, I know. You guys would never use these, right? All right, so the last one is okay. So share with the person sitting next to you what you think okay is. It's, it's initials, O period, K period. What do you think that that stands for? Share that with the person. All right, it's initials. It stands for all correct. All correct, but spelled O-L-L-K-O-R-R-E-C-T. And this was not something that was done recently. This was not done by modern slang or social media. This was done almost 200 years ago in Boston by a group of intellectuals that thought that they could create in language between each other. And there's one of those that's stuck, and I'm guessing you know which one it is. It's okay. That is where we get the word okay. All correct. 
And it came from this idea of if you're a treasure or if you're somebody that, that measured out land and things like that, and you were double-checking things and you were putting an all-correct by it. And it got easier to put initials and pretty soon publications started printing O period K period and old correct in parentheses and then they dropped that and they just stuck with the O K. So in a hundred years we might be explaining what LOL, laugh out loud, or IDK, I don't know is. Whether it's language or culture, it's often easy to be at odds with the younger generation. It's interesting to note how older generations can tend to shame younger generations. It's deserved sometimes, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes a generation's brand of different isn't wrong, it's just different. And sometimes different isn't just different, it's better. I'm going to give you some other examples. Here's a quote. They have trouble making decisions. They would rather hike in the Himalayas than climb the corporate stepladder. They crave entertainment, but their attention span is as short as one zap of a TV dial. So this was in Time Magazine about Generation X in 1990. All right, so let's try another one. The now generation has become the me generation. That was said in the New York Times about the boomers in 1976. Here's one more. I see no hope for the future of our people if they are dependent on the frivolous youth of today. Said by Helziod in the 8th century BC. <laughs> it's interesting, it's almost as if the older generation has been shaming their young since the beginning of time. What's my point? Every generation thinks, every generation is different, and every generation thinks their different is right. And every other generation's different is wrong, and that's wrong. It's sort of like an old quote from one of my favorite movies. Many of you have seen it, especially at the holidays. It's a wonderful life. And there's a quote whenever George Bailey is standing talking to his future Mrs. Bailey on the street, and he's apparently talking too much for the old impatient guy on the front porch when he thinks that George should be kissing her instead of talking to her to death. And his quote is, Youth is wasted on the wrong people. <laughs> but Jesus isn't calling us to divided age groups. He's calling us to unity. And within that unity, we have a call to raise up the generations following us. He calls us to be a family. You know how a healthy family treats each other? The young respect the old. They listen as if the older actually have a wisdom to share. And the old believe in the young. They empower, equip, and encourage them. They sacrifice everything for them because they recognize the young carry their legacy. I want you to imagine two individuals. They've got a lot in common. In fact, in this particular point in time, they've got a lot in common. They're both adults. They're both lost in desolate wilderness. They don't have shelter. They don't have food, no map, no fire. The difference comes with how they were raised. The first individual, let's call him guy number one. He grew up in a family that camped a lot. In fact, they not only camped, but they liked to do what they called extreme camping. 
This meant they found a spot far from anything and only took the basic necessities. On these treks, they learned how to make fire from basic items. They learned how to read stars, tell time with the sun, find basic food sources, and build shelters. This family went on these treks every week for 15 years. In between the treks, they talked about how to make these journeys, these encounters, better and researched the new and best ways to survive. The other individual, guy number two, grew up in a family too. They went camping a few times. His mom called it glamour camping or glamping. Their three or, few, three or four camping trips always included some sort of cabin or trailer and a mandatory running water in the bathrooms. Throughout the early years of guy number two, his family enjoyed their camping trips as long as it didn't interfere too much with their regular life. They never really talked about it except when thinking about memories. So now, both of these guys end up being lost in the wilderness. Which one do you think has the better chance of survival? Guy number one with survival experience or guy number two with very little actual camping experience? But what if we replace that camping experience with spiritual journey? One is raised with a family that leads spiritually, talks about God whenever they can, is committed to teaching and worship, and another person is devoid of that spiritual training. When faced with the wilderness of the world and the storms of life, which individual do you think would be able to overcome the world and even thrive in it? Yet it isn't through mere training or experience But someone's journey has to be rooted in faith. We have faith and believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He calls us to confess and turn from our sins and be baptized. It's a message that in unity we are called to share. Students are going to grow up to have a better future when three things happen. A, they will make wise choices. B, they build strong relationships. And C, they have a deeper faith. Really, they all kind of depend on that one. It all affects the rest. That's why it's up to you to leverage each distinctive opportunity about every phase, because in every phase, there are opportunities to help students and kids see their potential to know God, to experience the unconditional love of God and to rediscover how to relate to God. Then a student will grow up to understand that God created them, redeemed them, and desires to work through them to love other people around them. So don't miss it. When you show up for kids and students in every phase and help them develop authentic faith, you give them a better future where they can realize their created potential. So today, everything that we're talking about kind of falls under two things. The first one is that we each have a responsibility to pour into the generations that follow. The second one is that we each need to allow God to use others to minister to us. So for 
the last month, we've actually looked at Deuteronomy 6 a few times. And so we're not going to repeat that, rehash that. But if you'll remember, Deuteronomy 6 is where Moses is preparing the people to go into the promised land. He's standing before the people of Israel. And he's giving them a charge as a nation and as a household that they need to live through the laws and the truth that they have and to pass it on to those on the next generation. It doesn't take too much when you're reading that to see that there is this idea of raising up the next generation at the heart of what Moses is talking about. But that's not the only passage in the Bible. If you want to turn to Psalm 78, we're going to be looking at that. And what's really neat about Psalm 78 is it's going to give us a whole package. Another P word. You'll appreciate that in a second. Because it's going to give us a past practice. It's going to give us a plan. It's going to give us the purpose. And it's going to give us what to expect, our potential outcome. So follow along with me in uh, Psalm 78, starting in verse 1. My people hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. That is the past practice. We know the things that we know because somebody before us told them about the things of old, told us about the things of old. What you don't know as you're growing up is because what they didn't tell you. So there's two sides of that past practice. But then what's next? We see what our plan is. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. That's the plan. That's what our plan is, church. That's what our plan is, parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles. But what's the purpose? Why do we do that? We could just leave it there. God could have just left it there. But he actually tells us why. He gives us the purpose. So the next generation would know them, all the things that we've taught them. Even the children yet to be born. I think of uh, Jacob and Hannah. They've got a child that's yet to be born in January. And you may have people in your life that they're pregnant and they're ready to, to give birth. Our niece Taylor just gave birth to our nephew, who is kind of like our grandson, Mickey, because of our relationship with her. And I think of those young lives that we have an opportunity. Our plan is to teach them, but not just them, their kids, and their kids as kids. They, in turn, would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds but would keep his commands. That's the why. And then we kind of see the expected outcome. In fact, it's kind of the reverse of verse 7. 
The potential outcome of all this is that they would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. You want your children and youth to be an example to those that are around them? You want your children and youth to rise up and be leaders as they grow? You want your children and youth to follow God? Teach them. It's on you. Proverbs even has a verse that summarizes this passage. Proverbs 22.6. Start children off the way that they should go, and even when they're old, they will not turn from it. You've probably heard varying versions of that verse. In fact, some of you probably have it hanging up in your house. We, we love to hold on to this verse as a promise. But the reality is, we should probably grab a hold of this as a call or commandment. Start children off on the way they should go. Pour into them. Pour into them. Raise them up. Train them. Which finally brings us to the marbles. Um, I've actually got a slide that we're going to show that is kind of going to give us a little bit uh, better idea. You know, Brian showed us or told us a few weeks ago that there's 936 weeks between ages 0 to 18. And if we look at marbles to kind of visualize that, it gives us something tangible to look at, right? And so you can see here, there's 936, it looks like dots from where you're sitting. You get close, they actually look like little marbles. But I want to go on because when a child, when a student, when a teen or preteen makes it to sixth grade, 364. 364 marbles left. 364 hormonally charged marbles at this point, we've already lost nearly two-thirds two -thirds of our marbles. <laughs> and if you have a sixth grader at home, I'm sure you know something about losing your marbles. <laughs> then when your kid walks through high school in ninth grade, we're down to 208 marbles. You see it? And then just for you parents of seniors out there, I'm one. Consider the fact that you're down to your last 52. 52 marbles representing 52 weeks. I know what you're thinking, family and friends of students. Thanks for equally depressing me and freaking me out. <laughs> Please know that neither of those emotions or reactions are my goal. I also know that some of you may be resistant to the idea of doing a countdown. You may be thinking, don't make me focus on how much time we have left. I should just be focused on the now. The visual of the marbles comes from the folks at Orange, an organization that focuses on the strategic partnership between the church and the family in raising up the next generation. Reggie Joyner, the CEO of Orange, says this when it comes to keeping track of your marbles. When you see how much time you have left, you start to get serious about the time you have now. Have you ever got a bill in the mail that says it's coming due? Do you ignore it and pretend it's not going to? I've still got electric. I'm okay. I, I just bury your head in the sand. It's, I'm just going to focus on the now. 
No, if we're wise, we take an opportunity in looking at those and plan for it. We aren't counting down with dread. Instead, we're paying attention to the time we have left so that we'll be motivated to make the countdown count. Now, I want to pause for a moment to make sure we're all tracking because I know grandparents and parents, you guys are probably healthily tracking with me. I fully recognize there are empty nesters in here, not yet parents, maybe never parents, singles, and those of you are actually part of this age group in the room. So you might be thinking, well, what about me? Here's where you come in. And don't miss this. You are essential to this. This is the responsibility of the family and the church. I believe the biblical model outlined in Deuteronomy 6 and Psalm 78 and other places that points to the home as the place where the primary discipleship should be happening. Yet the church family is here to work in partnership with the home. It is really meant to be a both and situation. When I see this partnership fully functioning, it's beautiful. However, there can be moments when the investment is not taking place at home. In these moments, the church has the opportunity to play its normal role and also to play the role as a family. When I see this happen, this is also a beautiful thing. Whether it's in your home or not, you are important to the spiritual development of the next generation. In the world of children and youth ministry, there is this thing known as the 5-1 ratio. The idea is that whether it's a weekly program or retreat, to have one adult leader present for every five kids. The general thought is that this ratio gives good connection to the kids and ensures that nothing gets burnt down. Jap Clark has been a youth minister for a long time. He's a youth ministry professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. He's challenged this idea. He's asked the question, what if we flipped it? What if we were to seek to get five caring adults to invest in the spiritual journey of one kid? Let me take it a step further. What if moms and dads in the church were able to confidently identify five individuals intentionally investing in your child's journey through every step of the journey? There are some great mentors in our community that come in the form of educators and coaches. Some of them love Jesus, but they have some limitations in what they can do and what they can say when it comes to spiritual investment. That's why there's really only one place this can happen, and that's the church. The church is the place where we can fully and unapologetically focus on our kids and students' journey with Jesus. That may happen in small groups. That may happen in serving alongside one another. Whoops, wrong way. So, empty nester. Nope, already said that. Don't you hate it when you lose your place? So, empty nester. I was right. Single adult, married with kids, upper class, married with no kids, upper class student, 
What if you were one of the five in the life of one of these amazing teens or any one of the zero to 18-year-olds we have here at Highland Park? For each age group, there are a couple of good guidelines for pouring into them. First off, last week, Brian and Michelle talked about consistency. Middle school and high school students need consistency too, however, for slightly different reasons. Middle schoolers need consistent adults because nothing else in their life is consistent. High schoolers need consistent adults because they only trust people who show up consistently. The other guidelines are unique to their age groups. In middle school, a preteen challenges authority and personalizes what they believe. The way a middle schooler resolves the who questions like, who am I, who do I like, determine the framework for their relational stability. It affects the way they see themselves, the way they see the world, and the way they see themselves in the world. In these phases, the answers to those questions are no longer the same for every student, so they need to be personalized. The best way to resolve a middle schooler's relational questions is to affirm their personal journey. This happens with an overdose of acceptance and acknowledgement of positive qualities and strengths. In high school, a teenager refines their unique abilities and develops a sense of purpose. Their future direction in life is prompted by answering questions like, where do I belong? Why should I believe? How can I matter? And what will I do? These answers affect the way they pursue community, live out a personal ethic, and contribute to the kingdom. The best way to resolve a high schooler's relational questions is to mobilize their potential. This happens by providing students with a place to belong, adults who listen and respond, have consistent opportunities to serve, and adults encouraging experiences. Students, you guys are all amazing. I love working with you, and I'm excited to see what God is going to do in your futures. The challenge I have for you is to be willing to be invested in. And honestly, that's something that could be true for all of us. Be willing to be invested in. The truth is that a willing heart is a game changer. As I've walked with a lot of students over my time in youth ministry, I've noticed a trend. Those students who seek out and surround themselves with those who care about their journey with Jesus are the ones who excel in their faith during their next phase of life. You can seek after a lot of things. Popularity, academic or athletic success, selfish or sinful desires. What if instead you surround yourself with people who are going to help you learn to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength? Finally, and I'm thinking of families for this one, let's identify the five. Let's not just hope for it to be. Students, what if you sat down with your parents and came up with five individuals who could intentionally invest in your spiritual journey? Here's a hint. Your mom and dad should be two of them. And what if you actually approached these individuals? And let them know that you're willing to be invested in. 
The bottom line is this. When you see how much time you have left, you tend to get serious about the time that you have now. May we be a church who will hear God's call, understand it, and obey it as we make the countdown count. You aren't going to do this on your own. This kind of understanding and ministry will only happen through the power and transformation of the Holy Spirit. If you never experienced that and would like to know more, there will be a few of us up front that you can talk with or pray with. Jesus Christ promised this to everyone willing to follow him, young and old. Would you stand with me and pray? Yahweh, God, creator of everything, of heaven and earth, Lord, we come to you and we ask you to be with us as we attempt to follow your commands to raise up each and every generation that follows us. Lord, I just pray that as we seek to do your will, you would give us the strength and ability, the perseverance, and the patience to accomplish the task. Lord, help each one of us here to be willing to be invested in. Help us to go out and make a difference in the lives of those around us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.